Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Dave. How are you doing today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? I am doing particularly great today. I'm always uh, happy to get to the top 10 songs of any given year during the 80s on K-Rock. Rock of the 80s in Los Angeles. And we are down to the top 10, or I should say up to the top 10 songs. How excited are you? We finally got here. It's been a while. It took uh, six months for us to examine 106.7 songs in 10 song chunks. We've had a lot of uh, great music directors. We've had some talent from overseas. It's been a lot of fun reaching out to a lot of people to get their opinions on the music that K-Rock played back in 1985. What did we got today? Well, Dave, I will give you anything, anything to tell me who we have in the studio with us today. You've been waiting for a long time to say that, haven't you? <laughs> Can you tell? Yeah. Tell me, what's the scenario? What are we going to do, Holly? <laughs> I'm down to my last cigarette. Who are we talking to? I haven't got a clue. Tell me. So if you haven't guessed it by now, we have John Easdale, the lead singer and songwriter of the band Drama Rama, as you think of as an L.A. band, but they are originally from Wayne, New Jersey. We will soon learn that people thought they were a French band, and we'll figure out why people thought that. He's got a great origin story, so we're going to get into that. And then we will count down the hits as we do. So these are the top 10 songs that K-Rock played way back in the year 1985. And before we get into that, Holly, why don't you, uh, that was my little teaser because you're getting excited, but <laughs> there's still other ways to access what difference does it make and how do they do that. Please find us at social media at WDDIM podcast, and there will be outtakes from our chat with John. So you can find us on YouTube at What Difference Does It Make Podcast. Sounds great. Well, then let's get right into it. This is John Easdale of Drama Rama on the What Difference Does It Make Podcast. Nice to meet you, Mr. Dave. Nice to meet you, Miss Holly. Very nice to meet you. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for doing this. Oh, looking forward to it. Although, well, we'll see what comes <laughs> out in the wash. Yeah, we. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, that's we how will. we always fly. We are talking about the year 1985 and KROQ, and we've been looking at all the songs from 106.7 to number one. I happened to be looking at what was going on in Drama Rama's life, and I didn't realize, for some, you know, I always assumed that Cinema Verite came out in 86, but it came out in late 1985. Yes, mm -hmm. but it was only released in France. And it was originally a French album and came out in November and was only available as an import in the United States until late 86. About a year later, we put it out ourselves after it was on the radio in Los Angeles. Okay, so explain this French connection. How did this all fall into place? We started the band and in the basement of a record store in, in Wayne, New Jersey. We were trying to be like Bleaker Bob's or a cool Manhattan record store. Yeah. But Wayne, New Jersey wasn't the place. It was it was 15 miles from Manhattan, but it might as well have been in Kentucky because it wasn't the place for a cool rock record store, but we were selling import 45s and independent American 45s. And, and we said, we can make records as good as that. So we went in the studio and we started recording in the basement. It was just, you know, experimenting more or less. And then went into a real studio and, and started doing some recordings and made a 45. And that came out in 82. 
And that led to a review in the Trouser Press magazine, which was kind of a rock and roll new wave magazine, if you will. And that got picked up by a DJ in France who read about us and started playing us. And then we put out an EP called Comedy, which he also played and presented to a record label in France called New Rose Records, which specialized in American artists. Pretty much, I, I think they put out the replacements Let It Be. They put out records by The Cramps and Johnny Thunders and, and mostly American artists, but it was based in Paris and that's how the album came out there. So it was kind of random. I thought that might have been some association with Cinema Verite, but it just was random. Yeah, yeah. It was just, it all went into the my take on, on songwriting too. It's, it's kind of like making movies and it's a style of film. It also runs through the films of Andy Warhol, I guess, and that picture of Edie Sedgwick, which is on the cover. Were you a film major? Is this... Uh... Was this something you were studying? I took some classes and I was just always a film buff. Yeah. As they say. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like movies a lot. And I mean, if it was as easy to make movies as it is to make records, I, I probably would have gone into that. Mm -hmm. But it, it's a lot easier to be in a band and just have to wrangle a couple of guys and tell them what to do. Whereas I can't even imagine how hard it must be to, to be a director of a film and have a whole crew and all that. It's just too complicated. <laughs> Okay, wait, just go back really quick. Do you, the name of the French DJ and the radio station that played the song? Uh, you know, I don't remember the, I, I think it was Radio Bordeaux, and I don't remember the call letters or the, the number, but the DJ and still a friend, a gentleman named Jose Ruiz. Yeah, based in Bordeaux. And he was like our Rodney Bingenheimer. Is that uh, what, what would be assumed? I guess, you know, and it's weird because, I mean, it's like, anyone in the country. I, I know DJs from all over the country who are a little bit jealous of Rodney because of the, the recognition he gets because he's the first guy playing in LA, but you know, there was a first guy playing songs in Dallas and a first guy playing songs in New York and WLIR or wherever, you know, but yeah, like that, a free form guy who got to play what he wanted. Well, yeah. I mean, we were based in LA and you know, the number two market. So that's, Oh yeah. No, so Rodney was the king and <laughs> You know, K-Rock was unique in terms of commercial radio at that time in America. I don't think there was another commercial radio station quite like K-Rock. Well, you did have one. You grew up in Jersey, in Wayne, Jersey, right? Which, mm -hmm. What was your station as a high schooler? What were you listening to? Well, there was some New York radio for a brief period. There was a station called WPIX that played cool music, but really there wasn't any cool radio it was all about playing records you know and that's why you know we, we were at the store and we were playing cool records or you know what we thought were cool records and listening to music all the time you know eating sleeping you know 24 7 it was all about rock and roll or our kind of rock and roll that we enjoyed and these were the friends that you grew up with and worked with generally yeah guys i graduated high school with the guys who owned the record store tommy and chris were a couple of years ahead of us in our high school but we knew them. We were all, all guys from Wayne. What was the name of the record store? It was called Looney Tunes. It was only in business from 79 to 82. So, okay. So because I'm sure because of, uh, to avoid a lawsuit, it probably wasn't spelled Looney Tunes. Like we think of Looney Tunes. With a Z. Oh, very know. good. Very edgy. <laughs> cool. okay. Yeah. You know, like boys with a Z. <laughs> so after 1982, you said it was 79 to 82. Your music career kind of took off and... Yeah, well, like I said, the store, I mean, we really tried to make it cool. We had uh, in-store autograph sessions with the Ramones and Ian Hunter and Mick Ronson and, and David Johansson from the New York Dolls and, and the Plasmatics. We were trying to, <laughs> you know, draw in business and it just, you know, it wasn't the kind of thing. We weren't, we were too cool to sell Kenny Rogers' greatest hits, you know. <laughs> Was it a little bit like High Fidelity where if someone came in and tried to buy a Kenny Rogers and you're like, eh, why, why waste oh, your yeah, time? Yeah, yeah, wrong store. No, yeah, go, no. Sorry, buddy. Yeah, no. <laughs> you shamed people. Okay, you were that. You were those guys. Okay. No more we mocking were, people for their taste in no, music. No, we, we, we just weren't interested. You know, we, we had a vision. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so were you writing songs at this time or was it, did it occur to you that we should start a band? It was me writing songs. And a guy named Jerry Dixon rented out the basement and brought all this equipment, recording and, and drums and guitars and amplifiers and just everything you needed to start making, you know, 
recording. So I would say like 80, 81, we started going down in the basement and doing experiments. It was just myself, Mark Englert, the guitar player, and Chris Carter, the bass player. And I played drums and, and we were, you know, recording my songs. And, um, and then late 81, beginning of 82, we, we decided to, to, you know, turn it into a band, like a real band. And, and it was right around the time that the record store was going out of business and, and or we, we ended up selling it actually to avoid going out of business. Yeah. Just went into making records ourselves, you know, I mean, we all had regular jobs too, but all the money we made on our day jobs went into our band. Okay, so you said, you know, you put it into making the music and recording music, but I read somewhere, I read an interview with you somewhere that you said that your stage presence, that your live show, I don't know if you felt like it hindered you. Were you playing out equally as you were recording? No, no. The first two years, three years, I think we were strictly a product of the basement or the studio. You could call it a studio, <laughs> but it was really the basement. Yeah, we had no, no uh, experience playing live whatsoever. And even... Over the next few years, we didn't really spend nearly as much time on stage as we did in the studio. So, uh, yeah, I, I have said before that when we did come out, we were not the most experienced. We, did, we didn't have the chops, man. <laughs> okay, so initially it sounds like you were Don Henley. You were the uh, the drummer slash singer. Is that, how's that? Yes. Yeah. Yes, but never on stage. When it came time to perform in, in concert, uh, I, I just took the microphone and found another guy from our high school who played drums. He was our, our very first drummer was Ron Machuga, first of, of many drummers we've had over the years. Uh, on the first album, I think there's three drummers, including myself. Oh, no, four, four, four drummers, including myself. So Wayne, New Jersey is just full of musicians. Yeah, well, they, you know, the reason why you get so many drummers is is we kept getting better drummers, you know. Maybe because I'm a drummer, I, I'm a lot more uh, picky, but it also has to do with personalities and guys who hit things for their instrument, they're more hard-headed, so to speak. <laughs> I find that to be true. Yeah, yeah. No, drummers, drummers are you know. There's a reason why there's all these kind of jokes about drummers, and drummers are the are the weak weakest link in a lot of in a lot of cases. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and, and again, no, no, it's, it's it's a lot to do with personality and and you know the ability to spend time in a van and and whatnot backstage as much as what they did when they played do you have a favorite drummer joke there's got to be i'm sure there's a few that have been told along the way why do drummers join bands because <laughs> they like to hang out with musicians there you go <laughs> i knew you'd have one at the ready well he, there's a book of them i mean they're, they're, <laughs> it's yeah. like my other favorite joke that a little boy told me it's like why do girls wear makeup and perfume because they're ugly and they smell bad <laughs> I never heard that one. Oh. <laughs> I, 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 I can't take credit, but it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a classic. The, the all-time classic. Boy, it's a perfect little boy joke. <laughs> all right. So speaking of girls and uh, and your first <laughs> your first record, who was this girl in high school or, or maybe after you graduated? Cinema Verite, all about one girl. Someone hurt you if you wrote no, all these it's songs. Two. It's two, <laughs> two in particular. One was my high school sweetheart, and she broke my heart. I'm going to start crying. Uh, no, I won't really. Yeah, at the time, it was very painful, and I wrote a lot of songs about that. And the other was the first woman I married. It was a teenage wedding, so to speak. And uh, I made the wise decision of moving into a one-room studio apartment just downstairs from the rest of the band. Oh. They who lived upstairs, were, it was just, it was really smart smart move oh. with your wife oh yeah no yeah we that was our our honeymoon cottage yeah it was a studio apartment it was a like a four unit old house that they turned into apartments and and i i had used to live upstairs with the band and then studio opened up we moved in my wife and i and uh that didn't really last very long uh, yeah, that's what that song "Anything Anything" is about. Yeah, do I say it's the old joke? Like when you get married, you're not just marrying your spouse; you're marrying their family. Your wife apparently was marrying into the band as well. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and and yeah, absolutely. I don't recommend that that uh, scenario for anyone thinking of getting married who's in a band. 
they don't 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 move into the same building as the rest of the band. This is the scenario. How about that? <laughs> well, how long how long did it last? The well, on on paper we were married for quite some time, but she was out of the apartment. I would say in a matter of months. That's definitely a life lesson. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. But mm-hmm. there was there was that incident that inspired anything. anything. The, uh, it, your Edie Sedgwick? Could, it could be said. There, there, <laughs> there, there, there was a resemblance, perhaps. Perhaps. Okay. There had been a book that had just come out, and she was a, a bit of a, um, a starlet because she was one of Andy Warhol's yeah. uh, uh, girls, and she was a model, but she was also like a bad drug addict. But yeah, no, um, not a great... There, there's the screen test, the Andy Warhol screen tests, and then there's Child Manhattan, and neither one is... is, is you know, they're not... They're not movies that you like. She was uh, like a debutante celebrity, the original celebutante, uh, or maybe not the original. I'm sure there were some in the 50s. We're looking at Cinema Verte. I mean, is it, are you trying to tell a story through these songs of like your relationship with your wife? This is where I am. Is it a snapshot of your life in like 1983, 84? It is, but it wasn't intentional. I think that was just what I was, you know, I was just writing what I was living. And, and, And there's other things in there. There, there are songs that aren't based strictly on my life. Yeah, there's there's some that's just poetry. <laughs> what I did like about Dramarama is that you, you did a, a number of covers where I kind of discovered, you know, I discovered these bands like, oh, Femme Fatale. Okay, that's a Velvet Underground song. Did you cover it because you were a fan of Andy Warhol and, and that era? Why, why did you choose that one? And also David Bowie's, you, you had a, a candidate on there. Yeah, well, it was a combination. I mean, I don't think we were trying, although the Velvet Underground wasn't nearly as well known as they became over the next 20, 30 years. At the time, their records were all out of print. They weren't as well known. But yeah, we we put that on our first 45 as well. That was a holdover from then. Here she comes. Better watch your step. She's going to Break your heart in two Yeah, it's true It's not hard to realize Just look into her false-colored eyes She'll bring you up Just to put you down Oh, what a clown Cause everybody The, the idea was was double fold. I mean, we did try to, you know, as the years went by, we tried to introduce bands that maybe weren't as well known. But also, as music fans, we were familiar with cover versions of our favorite artists. So if somebody did a Lou Reed song, we would know about it. If somebody did a David Bowie song, we would know about it. So it was kind of a way to to say, hey, look, we we like David Bowie too. You know, that's how I found out about Bauhaus. It was 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 because of their version of Ziggy Stardust. There are other people who had done Bowie songs over the years. And if you were like a real super fan of David Bowie, you knew about him too. You know, you'd hear about him. And there's this girl named Dana Gillespie did, did a Bowie song and Lulu did a Bowie song. And I mean, we just knew. By the way, today is that we're recording is the 50th anniversary of Ziggy Stardust coming out. No kidding. Yeah. I'm sure you owned a copy of that. When did you first uh, come into contact with Ziggy? I was a late, late arriver. I think it was probably like 74, 75 when I really started listening to to Cool Rock from England. That really just shook me up. Bowie, Mott the Hoopball, T-Rex, Roxy Music. I, I was a couple years behind. I was like 13, 14 years old before I started listening to that stuff. A, a, a dear friend of mine. He had the records and his brother had the records. And actually, 
oddly enough, a lot of that ended up, it, it was all influenced also by the guy who ended up being our bass player and, and owned the record store. So those guys listened to it separately, but I heard about it from a younger brother and that's when I started listening to it. Like Bowie at that point was already on to like low and heroes but I was really into the Ziggy and Aladdin scene, hunky dory stuff like that. Mm. That is how it happens often, though. An older, someone's older sibling or your older sibling, right? How it's oh, sure. discovered. Yeah. And again, the radio in, in, in New York City was playing Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen and just not David Bowie. Even right. though the Ramones and all that was going on, CBGBs and Talking Heads and Blondie. That wasn't on the radio in New York. It was just happening down in the Bowery there. Was there anywhere for you to go? I know, you know, like Rodney in L.A. had the English disco. Did you have somewhere in, in Jersey to uh, to hear new things? You know, we're to Jersey get uh, nightclub scene was very much just cover bands and they were all playing Led Zeppelin and mm -hmm. whatever was popular at that time. So this record store was kind of your club. Oh, absolutely. No, yeah. that was that was it. And, you know, as the 80s progressed, there started being these little cool new new wave clubs. There was a couple. There was one called Aldo's in New Jersey, but mostly we were part of that bridge and tunnel crowd they talk about, and, and we'd go into we'd go into the city to check out cool stuff. So when you started playing live, where did you play? Did you have a place, a regular place where you played? There were a bunch of dives in New Jersey that would allow original music, but they weren't popular places. There was one one in particular called the Dirt Club, and, and we we played there, and the Smithereens played there. And a couple other bands, but it wasn't a thriving uh, original rock scene in New Jersey by any stretch. Yeah, were the Smithereens like your rivals? You know, like the the Beatles and the Stones. It was the Dramarama and and uh, oh, Smithereens. No, they were a much better band than we were. <laughs> oh, yeah. We weren't even. We weren't anywhere in their league at that time. No competition. They outclassed us in every way. We were Golden Gloves. They were pros. Oh, okay, so you would see their shows and just go, God, one day, man, one day. Maybe. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think I was as aware of just how weak we were at the <laughs> no. time as a, as a live outfit. The story of the record, it, it could have just stopped where it did and it came out in France and, you know, just a little buzz here. But Rodney Bingenheimer started playing it on K-Rock in Los Angeles. He picked it up, not for the music, but for the cover. He liked that picture. <laughs> Very smart. Yeah. 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 Well, we were doing everything we could. We'll put, we'll put Edie on the cover, which we were borrowing the idea from the Smiths, who who mm -hmm. their, all their albums had like a, a cover star, some some old movie star, and the Andy Warhol thing, and we had the Bowie song, and we had the Lou Reed song. We were just you know loading it up as best we could to get people to look at us, look at all our cool influences, you know. And Rodney picked up the album and started playing songs off it, and anything anything struck a chord, I guess, with the listeners. And as they used to say, the phones lit up. As I was looking. Anything, anything, which I assumed was a U.S. hit, you know, like a like a pop hit that was heard because we heard it all. Mm -hmm. It didn't even chart. It was the song. It, it was on one radio station. Yeah, <laughs> it was on it was on KROQ, which I was going to get into later when we talked about uh, the number two record of the year oh, okay. of 1985, because you could have a huge hit in Los Angeles because KROQ was one of a kind radio station. And other than that, it was probably on some college radio stations, but I doubt there was another commercial radio station in the country playing it. Yeah, K-Rock was our bread and our butter. Yeah, I'm surprised other stations didn't pick it up. But I guess eventually stations started playing Dramarama. I mean, there was... You had you had a few oh. a few hits. That it, it took a, it took a few years. It did, um, yeah. We put the record out ourselves, and and we didn't have a promotion team or anything, so we never really even tried to push it beyond Los Angeles. You know, we were we were just selling records in Los Angeles. We were on the radio in Los Angeles, and we were like, wow. And at that point, we we were living in New Jersey, and we had no idea. A friend of mine. A friend of a friend called up and said, hey, did you know this DJ Rodney Bingheimer is playing your record on Sunday nights? And we said, no, but we knew who Rodney was. And so we contacted Rodney. Rodney was saying we were from France. Rodney had no idea we were <laughs> from New Jersey. So we contacted Rodney, and then Rodney came out to New Jersey for the Monkees were getting back together, and their first show was in New York. So he stayed with us. It had switched from just being on his show on Sunday nights to Rick Carroll, who was the program director of K-Rock, had added it to the regular rotation, and it was doing really well. We had no idea. 
we came out to California for a little vacation and we're on the radio like every couple hours and uh, we booked a show and sold out and, and we opened up for the Psychedelic Furs at Irvine Meadows and we were just, you know, we were all working day jobs in New Jersey and we came out to California for a vacation and ended up just staying. Just being rock stars. Yes, exactly. Look at that. And, and really just, yeah. yeah, it was like a movie. It was like winning a contest. When we came out, we were on the radio. We had a big hit song on this one radio station. We played a show, and I want to say probably every record company guy was there to see us, and we stank up the joint, to put it delicately. We were not a good band. We were not a great live band. I think we did more damage playing live. We would have been better off taking yeah. pictures and, and doing vid doing a video. Um, the video was done by a, a French TV show that, that just kind of, but yeah, no, it's embarrassing to see All some right. of those so clips. Was it just because there wasn't a lot of places to play in Jersey for you guys, and it, it, you just didn't build up the chops and get those, you know, like the ten thousand hours of playing live? Oh, absolutely. There was yeah. nowhere to play, and we couldn't get a gig in New York to save our lives either. So yeah, no, we 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 had like maybe a dozen shows under our belts for the first two three years of our existence, and when we came out here, we just weren't that good. And I think, like I said, we did damage. Now, we did get uh, one offer from Capitol Records, and they and we went in the studio and did some demos, and they were like, oh, that's good. You know, they gave us money, and they said, here, we'll give you more money to do more demos, you know? And we were like, no, we're going to just put out our second album ourselves because we know what we're doing, and we know everything about the music business. This was uh, something that runs through our, our career with major labels. Is <laughs> we, we know better. We always knew better back then. It's and, in the Jersey uh, blood, I think. Yeah, it's that, and, you know, <laughs> we know more than they do. But at the time, we were like, no. So we put out our second record. And it was called Box Office Bomb, and it lived up to its title. <laughs> and we, we put that out ourselves. Yeah, you know, it, it didn't do as well as the first record on, on K-Rock, which is I, where I did we needed see, it to be, do well. I did see that. And, it's Still Warm actually made it up to number 32 on, uh, in 1987. Yes. Yes. And anything, which, anything is still on the charts. It was, uh, it was yeah, 95. It, it was still, you know, they, they played that incessantly. It, it, it was ridiculous. It is. It, yeah. It was craziness. It, it, there was, there was years ago, there was a thing on the, the website. What is that song? Marry me, marry me. It, it was like yeah. a, a, one of their frequently asked questions. Cause they, that was like, I guess people would call up and, and ask who that was. Cause they liked the song and had no idea who the band was. So that was one of their frequently asked questions. That's how it was done back then. No Shazam. <laughs> no Shazam. And it was, it was, it was, they didn't talk back the songs, you know, Right. they just played them. So you came out here on vacation. Was it at that point you decided to move here? And that's yeah, 80, in 86, we, we came out on vacation and we decided to stay <laughs> because regardless of how good we were, we could play clubs and, and we put our record out and uh, we, we got a, a manager and and we were playing shows and we were playing club shows and also like opening up for other bands at, at larger venues and it was like all of a sudden we had a quote-unquote career a, a musical career all right learned a lot about john easdale and his start as the lead singer for drama rama and also songwriter he does it all we will be right back Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guest, John Easdale of Dramarama. All right, so then let's evaluate some of these songs that were on the charts back in 85. You get to do the finale here. We're doing the top 10. We've been counting down these songs forever. It's taken us six we, months to get here. Every new season, we take a year, and this year is 1985, and we do it in 10 song chunks. Dave probably told yeah, you. I, yeah, I was, I was looking at your last bunch of shows, and I saw that it was is going down. It's awesome. <laughs> Counting down the hits. And before we go back to 1985, let's look forward a little bit. There's a new drama-rama that fairly new. It came out in 2020. The Only Thing Stupid slash Brilliant. I love that song. It was, it's really great. And this new <laughs> album, Color TV. Can you talk a little bit about that? It took us a long time to finish it and put it out. You know, I'm proud of all my children and, and, <laughs> and I love I love them all equally. I wanted to make a record that I hopefully was could live up to what we had done in the past. From all indications, people said, you know, it was on the same level. And, and all too often, you know, great bands from the past make a new record. And it's like, oh, you know, you should have just, just kept it the way it was. But no, I think this lived up to our past. And a guy I, I admire, uh, who's always been very nice to us, Robert Criscow, he said it was, you know, might might be our best album that we ever made. So I'll take it, and 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 I'm very proud of it. High praise yeah. indeed. Sounds true to Dramarama. Yeah, that was the whole idea was just to, you know, continue down that path. You know, I'm older and, and hopefully I'm wiser. Now, if you play these Lost 80s live shows, can you sneak in a song from Color TV? Is that possible? It, well, yeah, because okay, it's great. Still, you know, it's the same guys playing the same music. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll throw one in there. We'll open up with a new one, and, and no one knows because, like I said, some of these cities, they've never heard of us. The reason we got back together as a band in, in 2003, this show, uh, VH1, Bands Are United, came a-calling. Kind of, if you're familiar with the show, it's kind of like Ambush. Yeah. yeah. They just show up at your place of business, or in my case, my garage. They're like, hey, we're going to get, you want to get the band back together? And all of us were like, Sure. <laughs> and so we did and we got back together and um we were very surprised but that's that's how it all happened and so that and then we started doing the oldie stuff and the 80s stuff and yeah it's bizarre it's wonderful that uh it took some tv producers to get you guys together but uh, yeah and so when we play it's still the same guys that are on the first record the same guitar players and me yeah. And uh, the, the drummer and bass player that play with us now have been with us for just started playing with me in, in the 90s. So, 
you know, we're, which was we're, 30 years ago. So yeah, you, they, I, they, know. <laughs> I know they're the like new guys. Yesterday. Yeah. The new guys. Yeah. Like, yeah. Ron, like Ron Wood is the new guy in the Rolling Stones. It's, exactly. It's, or that other guy, Daryl who plays bass has been there since. Oh you know, yeah. 90, probably. Yeah. Whatever. Longer than Bill Wyman probably now. <laughs> actually. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great. It's absolutely okay. true. Terrific. I hate growing old, but oh well. Okay. Let's look back for a second. We're going to go uh, songs 10 to one. Just give like a, you know, kind of a snapshot uh, opinion of, of these songs, if it holds up. You know. Some of the songs I have, you know, more to say about than others, probably. That, that's quite all right. Number 10 is a band that's kind of like Dramarama. This is Oingo Boingo, a band huge in L.A. The song is Dead Man's Party. And what do you recall of Boingo Boingo and maybe the song Dead Man's Party in particular? Oingo Boingo in New Jersey, where we were growing up. They were on the um, IRS Cutting Edge TV show. You know, that mm-hmm. was, right. I, I don't even know if 120 Minutes was on yet on MTV, but they weren't on the radio. They were very, very underground. They would show up in movies and stuff. And I guess Danny Elfman did the Pee Wee's Big Adventure oh, soundtrack. Yeah. So oh, yeah. being the kind of guys that we were, you know, just eat and sleep, rock and roll. After we sold the record store, we all got jobs in record stores, you know. <laughs> so we knew who Oingo Boingo was, but they couldn't have sold out the Roxy in, in New Jersey. Yeah. Whereas they were playing Irvine Meadows and, 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 you know, big giant universal amphitheater and stuff out here. We actually play with them last week in uh, Bakersfield. And we played with them in Catalina the week weekend before we've, we've played a bunch of shows with them. Oh, this is the members of everybody, everybody except Danny has a band. It's Johnny and Steve and, and John Avila on bass and even Sam, the, the saxophone player. It's the entire band except for Danny Elfman. And, and they, they have a young guy who sings and sounds just like Danny Elfman. They're really good. They're, <laughs> That's they're, great. I mean, it's like really, Journey. Really, really, really good <laughs> band. They, 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 they're really good. Yeah, exactly. Like Journey. Or, they're amazing musicians, amazing music. And, and yeah, I, I, I really do like Oingo Boingo a lot. So Dead Man's Party's from Back to School. Did um, a movie? That, did the? Did you get, ever get placed in films at all? Anything? Anything is in uh, one of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, covered by Buck Cherry. It was in uh, Road Trip. Our songs were in like Pauly Shore movies and <laughs> Pet Cemetery Part Two. I mean. <laughs> There's a list. Super 80s. Okay, super 80s film. You haven't had your Kate Bush moment yet, but it's coming, I'm sure. Ah, God only knows. (laughs) I would think that's coming. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, let's get you on Stranger Things. Things. Next next year on Stranger Things. There you go. Who knows? All right. We'll make it. Yeah, they're moving into that period. Yeah, yeah, right. Mid late 80s. They're in. Yeah, they're in L.A. now, right? Stranger Things. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, this might happen. Yeah. Okay. I'll 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 get on the horn. Get on the horn, Holly, and. uh, yeah, you could be the promotion person. Okay, let's move up to uh, number nine. Tears for Fears. Everybody wants to rule the world. This is songs from the big chair. This is the second of three songs that are on the chart. We'll talk about another Tears for Fears song shortly, pretty soon. feelings on tears for fears i always liked them i liked their first album a lot and this record was just like so massively huge it was unbelievable it was the kind of record that even though my sister was not a listener to modern rock 
whatever they used to call it before they called it alternative. She had that album. I remember that. That's when you know it's big is when your sister <laughs> starts oh, yeah. to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I remember when she bought a blondie, you know, I remember when she bought the police, you know, <laughs> they were all cool rock bands that all of a sudden crossed over into the mainstream. Yeah. Okay. Digress for just for a split second. Speaking of blondie, Clem Burke, he's played with you. Oh yeah. He's one of the greatest drummers ever in the history of rock music. I went to see Blondie as a fan, uh, you know, as a teenage boy who thought Debbie Harry was everything. And then after I saw them, I was the biggest Clem Burke. I walked in a <laughs> Debbie Harry fan. I walked out of Clem Burke. And he's just so good. When our drummer left us, we were recording the vinyl record. So we recorded the vinyl record with a session drummer or two. And then when it came time to play live, Rodney Bingheimer once again <laughs> stepped in and said, why don't you ask Clem Burke? And we were all like, what? what? <laughs> we, we, he's like, no, we're not worthy kind of a Wayne's World kind of thing. But um, he was willing. Blondie was on hiatus. They hadn't been together for about 10 years, I don't think. And so he was happy to, to join. And we had him with us for a couple of years. And he played all the tour for that and then also plays on the hi-fi sci-fi album great guy we're still buddies uh, we yeah. want to get to the next song all right there, oh this is okay yeah this is one of holly's favorites uh nxs this time from the album listen like thieves are you uh nxs fan i am and it's weird because i i went and, and I, I clicked on all the links you sent me that song this time is such a good song and he's such a great performer and I'm surprised because there's some of their other songs that are, are still, you hear them all the time, yeah. you know, and, and that's not one of them. And that song, I really, really like that song. And I liked it at the time and, and, and it was great to hear it and say, wow, why don't they play this, you know? The other song from this chart was What You Need, which was number 53. Also a great song. Do you have like huh. a, yeah, Listen Like Thieves. Did you buy album? Were you buy like in 85 when you're, you know, were you still buying records or? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. I worked in a record store. It was called Discomat from 82 to 85. So okay, I did get records and I got cassettes, but I, I think I was way more about tape recording things and, and having the cassettes of them. <laughs> Let's keep counting down. This is a, a band we've talked about a lot uh, this year because they, they had a documentary that came out. This is the band Aha, and the song is Take On Me. You might have heard of this. It is kind of like a, an anything, anything. This was a song that you just... No, this was a song that actually made it to number one. It was played everywhere, not just on K-Rock. They, they still play it a lot. Yeah. That video was was really just still to this day is just one of the best videos ever. Yeah. You know, the, the animation and that's a great song and great video and, and well deserving of its of its longevity. still sound really good he still looks really good it's a beautiful thing yeah there were you watching videos back in the 80s i mean was that something like you would sit down and watch see what's going on on mtv and like oh we gotta do this we gotta do that how clued in were you to what was going on back then it was never we gotta do this we gotta do that thing i think we did end up doing videos we did like one video for anything anything but yeah we didn't do start doing them again until 
stuck in Wonderland. I watched videos, sure, I, particularly 120 minutes. I would watch that show, but yeah, it was something you'd put on in the background. Yeah, a lot of it wasn't really to my liking some of it was and some of it really wasn't you know they 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 were as bad as a top 40 station where they'd play the same video every couple hours and it wasn't always something that i really wanted to see again uh, much less six times in 24 hours (laughs) i don't think watched it with like the idea of oh we gotta do this or we gotta do that honest to god the videos was never something that i got i was never very comfortable in front of the camera Mm -hmm. and i watch myself now and and i I cringe (laughs) a little bit at what we've done some of the things we did not all of them yeah whereas i was saying how proud i am of the body of work musically video wise there's definitely things that i would if i could bury and 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 hide and buy every copy and and yeah put it away well part of your history and you can you can be impressed with how much you've you've grown but yeah but it was the same it was the same with like photo sessions like try to find one where I'm not scowling, you know, they, they'd have to go dig through all the contact sheets to find one where I wasn't just like making a face of, uh, can we get this over with? Cause I just, I'm just not comfortable. I'm not happy in front of the camera. That was your personality back then. So that's kind of, it's, no, a, it's, it's a, not just that it, it, it's not false modesty. I, I get uptight. There's, there's a word that should come back, man. Uptight. Uptight. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, everything's all right. (laughs) Here's a guy who wasn't uptight. This is Pete Burns. The song is, the band is Dead or Alive. You spin me round like a record. was ubiquitous on MTV and uh, it was a it was a number one in the UK like yeah, number 11 in the US did you like dance music were you a, a dance beautiful music? a beautiful man beautiful beautiful yeah no sure we played with them at a live 105 uh, show in San Francisco and they obviously were a, a track band they didn't actually have a band but he was wildly entertaining and and yeah. flamboyant and gorgeous and wonderful we played with tears for fears too actually uh, at one point we opened for them and radiohead opened for us oh is that right oh my god yeah we had a lot of bands open for us over the years that went on to to fame and fortune did you get to meet Pete Burns or you talk with him? I mean, he's just a, he had four songs in, in 1985 on, on the K-Rock charts. Youthquake was just mm. all over the place. And, you know, Pete Burns was just uh, this unique personality we've been talking about a lot. Did you get to talk to him or get to know? No, no. It was the kind of thing where, like, he was like an English superstar. And, yeah, they keep those guys pretty... <laughs> Okay. Behind, yeah, no, and it's still the same with a lot of these bands. Like we've done shows with like uh, Mark Almond and and Human League and Adam Ant, and they they still like they're a part. You know, they have a an entourage, and they're just like in the middle. And, and are you a hanging out guy? I mean, you oh, know, I'm, like... I'm the most hanging out. Guy. <laughs> okay. Are you I'm with the merch? From the audience, I'm I'm part of the audience, and and I still feel like part of the audience. I. I I am not the hide in the backstage and hide. Yeah. Uh, let's keep counting them down here. Number five, yeah. probably the, the hookiest hook of, of all where you, you know, the chorus uh, once you say the title of uh, the song shout by tears for fears. What do you think of this song? I thought both of those albums were just amazing. The first one and, and the second one, I was kind of surprised when tears for fears became this absolutely enormous, huge, you know, international stadium filling rock band. Really? Uh, where I grew up in New Jersey, nobody knew The Waiting. Nobody knew that album. It was something that I listened to and, you know, a couple other people at the record store I worked at, but like 
nobody knew who they were. And then all of a sudden that record came out and it was huge. Yeah. And I, so I was like surprised, not, not because of the quality wasn't there, but just because I was like, wow, how did these guys oh, yeah. go from total underground? They were your, to, your to, secret to, band to uh, the biggest stars. band in the world. Yeah. Show, show. like uh, my big that was like rem for me like how did these yeah. guys how does this how are they selling out stadiums what happened it's i mean it's wonderful it's it's great when it's like an organic thing and it just kind of you no know, uh, it was a long hard climb for rem for sure yeah they, they didn't start out like that not yeah. at all dave's fave yeah all right well let's talk about holly's fave this is the cure in between days is number four on the k-rock chart from the mm-hmm. album the head on the door this was actually the first Cure single to actually reach the top 100. It, it hit all the way up to number 99. So uh, this was the start of things to come for The Cure. Are you a Cure fan? Do you like... Uh, what you- I do like The Cure. I remember Love Cats and a couple of Boys Don't Cry, a couple of other songs, but they were club hits and, and underground kind of songs. That album, I remember distinctly and particularly because we were uh, visiting France... We were on tour. We were driving around France. This guy was driving us around, and he had that cassette in his player in the car, and we just listened to it nonstop <laughs> yeah. for, for like two weeks. Just listened to it and listened to it and listened to it and loved it. And Yeah, that's a great album. I think that's my favorite album by them. Me too. Yesterday I got so old I felt like I could die Yesterday Yeah, good memories. What? Uh, let, let's go to in the eighties. Let's, let's go to France in the eighties. What was that like? I mean, did kids from Jersey suddenly you're kind of uh, pretty popular in France? Was- Again, it was just kind of like surreal because yeah. we were we had a record coming out in France. We're hanging around in Paris yeah. in springtime, you know, and, and it's just insane. It was it was beautiful and weird at the same time, and nothing like it. It was wonderful, but at the same time, it was weird because, well, first of all, NXS was selling out stadiums in France, whereas in America, they still were maybe a big club band or, or a theater band. So that foresaw the, the shape of things to come for NXS. I didn't really, I knew who they were, but I was surprised. Look, wow, look, they're selling out big, big places. And, you know, Prince and Madonna and Michael Jackson and, and things like that were still, you know, top of the charts was still the same same stuff that was top of the charts where we were was language a hindrance at all because you know like you, you couldn't go on talk shows or could you or did you do like radio do going on radio stations and we would go on mostly they spoke english thank god because we didn't <laughs> okay. speak a, a word of french it was harder going to a restaurant and ordering food than it was to to go on tv or the radio because they would have their one guy who spoke english i guess to who would talk to us but yeah no going in and, and reading a menu or something like that that was way harder you were still uh not the best band in the world did you play shows in france when we first went there the first time we went there i think we did a lip sync thing on a tv show and we went uh, to radio stations and talked by the time we got there after the second album we were 
a hundred times better. Okay. So it was probably for the best then. Okay. And that was, we, <laughs> then we went on a tour. We were there for a whole month. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was, that was amazing. Talk about your opportunities, which is the number yeah. three song by Pet Shop Boys, international superstars. This was a top 10 hit in the U S and actually K rock. This wasn't a hit until 1986. K rock jumped on this yep. in 85 and they made it all the way up to number eight, three. This was, this was a, a recurrent by the time it became a hit in, uh, you know, in, in 86 for, for K-Rock. Interesting. Yeah, they have really good songs, Pet Shop Boys. I've never been a big fan of, of the synth pop genre too much, but I can't deny when when there's cool, cool songwriting taking place. A, a couple of their other songs are really good, but I would I don't think I, I've ever owned any of their records, put it that way. But they have good songs. kind of gathered that synth wasn't your thing which is interesting you came up at a time where synth music was really huge well i honestly think that our song did well because it was a breath of fresh air compared to because and, and a lot of bands i mean a lot of people who didn't know or never heard our music but because we were popular on k-rock thought we were probably a, a synth pop band and and and, and never knew because they never heard us they'd like oh drama that, that must be a synth pop band they're on k-rock until they heard us and then we were just a regular guitar bass drums rock and roll band but for instance on k-rock if you look at that list not a lot of rock and roll guitar stuff on well, the, there on this, that top 10 that we're doing anyway yeah the synth the synth was the, was the new toy that everyone liked to to mm -hmm. play with and Again, a song placement. It was in a in an Allstate commercial, and uh, it became a hit again. In, uh, is, is that the, is that what that is the new one? The, I, I was wondering. Yeah, you got the, the brains, I got the looks. So let's get the, where the, the, yeah. the the hood ornament is singing with yeah. the guy. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know. I I couldn't remember what the product was, but I remember seeing it on a commercial. Yeah, it uh, yeah made it back onto the the dance electronic digital song sales charts. Number hit number one last year, as a matter of fact. So mm -hmm. Just thanks to Allstate and being being placed on a Super Bowl commercial. But that's how things happen now: is commercials and and film placements. That's that's how Kate Bush has got her first uh, yeah American top ten. Right? It's it's a beautiful thing sometimes. So great for the artist, but also telling that you remember hearing the song, but you don't remember the product. I absolutely no. <laughs> okay, so let's go to number two. The uh, th this was kind of I think this was a goof. On K Rock's part, just kind of like, all right, let's let's just play around with uh, the number two song and uh, what what have we been playing? Let's just put uh, the song "Vigilante" by the band Felony, and this was they were in an LA band, a couple well, brothers. Yeah, I, I I understand what you're saying, a goof, but K Rock always had songs that were unique to that station. There was there was a song called "Teenage Enema Nurses in Bondage." <laughs> sure, <laughs> and. Uh, there was a song called "Time Is a Ticky Talk." Um, <laughs> there were all there. There were a number of songs that were K Rock songs that really didn't go anywhere else. And and anything anything had that same potential. You know, it it, it was very much a Southern California thing and didn't really translate into the the rest of the country. Although eventually it did. I, I don't I, I still don't understand how people you know how, how it grew from where it, where it started and where it was for a long time to where it now it, people know it in, in other places but yeah we were kind of a victims of that and though these guys I read uh, you know I had to go go down that rabbit hole and try to find more find out more about felony yeah and and and, and you know read their history and sadly I think the singer ended up committing suicide oh. 
I saw that, and, and it was yeah. shortly after the band. I don't know if they split or stopped making music, but it wasn't that long after. Of course, things moved faster in those days. Bands didn't take ten years between albums. I don't pretend to know the circumstances and and whatnot. It's a shame, and and I'm sure they were doing really well. Although, my wife who grew up out here, she doesn't remember that song. I'd never heard it before last week when when you sent me the link. Yeah, you know, I've played it a couple times. I still don't, it still hasn't stuck in my head. I've been trying to, like, I still know The Fanatic, that song, which uh, was a hit on K-Rock a few years er earlier. That's a really memorable song that Mm -hmm. I remember K-Rock played a lot of. And this one just did not, I I don't know, apparently they did play it. There's a couple other versions, too. There's an Arthur Baker remix. Yeah, it's out there. I mean, I clicked around. None of the videos, I don't think, has more than a thousand views, though. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know how that worked. But that's what Rick Carroll did uh, running K-Rock. He was very much a, a maverick yeah. in terms of what he'd play. Uh, they did have a song that was placed on uh, from this album. Uh, I'm No Animal was placed on Friday the 13th, part six, Jason Lives. So, Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> so there you go. That uh, They got their song placement. Okay, so there you go. So that was number two. That brings us to the number one song in 1985 from K-Rock. It's Depeche Mode, Shake the Disease, a synth-pop band that you may have heard of. exception that proves the rule they have some amazingly great songs actually there was a recording at some point of martin gore just him and an acoustic guitar playing some of these songs and you really can appreciate the craftsmanship and the quality of the songwriting when you hear it like that Mm -hmm. and this song is a good example this is an amazing song despite the synth pop kind of thing and same with vince clark who was the original keyboard guy and went on to be the guy behind Erasure and um, what was that band with Allison Moyet? Yes, Yazoo. Uh, yeah, Yaz, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's he's a brilliantly talented guy too. We played with Erasure one time. Boy, was that a, a, oh, an nice. experience? How yeah, so? It was, it was Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies. They had like a twenty-man chorus line of feather boas and sugar plum fairies and yeah no it was it was incredible that's a weird mix did you opened up for them yes we did we did and and we got it like a foot at the front of the stage (laughs) we we had to set up like the drummer right up with the rest of us because they had quite an elaborate stage yeah it was uh two nights at open air theater in san diego i don't know how we got that gig but we did great singer great songs but Depeche Mode, that I doubt they could have played club or a theater in New Jersey, and they were playing freaking Rose Bowl out here, you know? Yeah, that's true. 
So yeah, synth pop, meaning they understood the importance of uh, the pop part of synth pop. Yeah. No uh, doubt about yeah, it. Yeah, so I mean, these songs are so catchy. And as you mentioned, if you could play it on a guitar, it's still a solid song. That's a timeless classic, I think. Absolutely. And and the lyrics are really good, too. This was the second Depeche Mode song from this year or from this chart that was not on an album. It was on a, a Greatest Hits, but it was never released on an album. Well, that was a big thing in England for the longest time. You had singles and you had albums. And singles didn't necessarily appear on the albums. A lot of times they would just be a single. That's what people do now. I mean, I'm sure you can just put out a song right now whenever you want to. You don't need to wait for it's, it to, for an album. It's way back. Albums are definitely a quaint thing of the past in, in a lot of ways. You know, it's a different time. Okay. We did it. Hey, okay. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, time flies when you're having fun, right? Wow. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Oh, we Thank did. Thank you so much for we doing this. This was really fun for us. Here's your chance to plug. So you, you are on the Lost 80s tour for the summer. Is that is this a summer tour? What's uh where where will we yeah, where will we find you? It's it's like August, September. Mostly we'll be all around with the Lost 80s. And then after that, who knows, you know, <laughs> we've been really lucky. And the idea that we're still doing it is still kind of, I still have to pinch myself. Even back in the day when we were in France, I had to pinch myself. And when we were <laughs> first came to California, I had to pinch myself. When VH1 came a call in 20 years ago, I had to pinch myself and that we're still doing it. Nothing short of a miracle in, in a lot of ways. We're very lucky. We're lucky to have you. I'm just in awe of it, but I'll take it. Yeah, say, right. I'll just say thank you. Thank you. We did it, Holly. Congratulations. We did it. We did it. What? I have no idea. Are you what not that... a big Dora the Explorer fan? Oh. <laughs> Didn't your kids grow up in the time of, of Dora course. the Explorer? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know Dora the okay. Explorer. I'm a little thrown off by your uh, musical talent. It was the year of the synth pop band, 1985. A lot of new bands were just starting to take off. And so this was exciting to, to kind of hear those songs that uh, first launched these bands. I found it to be a great period for music. A lot of, certainly, with the synth pop explosion, headed up by Duran Duran, Catch Up Boys, Pete Burns, Dead or Alive, as we found out. It's been a lot of fun, 1985, to count down and getting to the top 10, obviously. Tears for Fears. It was a good year, 1985. Let's also not forget the Pesh Mode. They were starting to be a big thing. We had a lot of fun doing this. I would recommend subscribing to the What Difference Does It Make podcast so you get each and every episode and you get to review what's going on. This is not the end of our podcast. You never know who's going to step into our virtual studios. So uh, smash that subscribe button. And Holly, what else is going on with us? And I wanted to thank John Easdale. It was such a delight to have him. He of Dramarama. And it was fun to have him with us for the top songs of 1985. Yes, I 100% agree. And again, this is not the end. Got a lot more to go through. Always a fun time on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. New episodes every Friday. Where else can they find us, Holly? Find us on social media at WDDIM Podcast and What Difference Does It Make Podcast on YouTube for our many clips. So check us out. That's the takeaway. Check us out. <laughs> so check us out. Yeah, we're pretty hot stuff if you ask us. <laughs> All right. So hot stuff, Holly. Until next time, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.